Welcome to Savage Minds. I'm your host, Julian Vigo. Today's guest is Jeffrey A. Tucker, the founder of the Brownstone Institute and an independent editorial consultant who served as editorial director for the American Institute for Economic Research. He is the author of numerous articles in the scholarly and popular presses, as well as author of eight books in five languages. Most recently, The Market Loves You. He is also the editor of the best of Mises. He speaks widely on topics of economics, technology, social philosophy, and culture. And last year, he penned Liberty or Lockdown, wherein he vituperates the most widespread violations of human freedom of our lifetimes, the authoritarian lockdown of society under the guise that this is necessary to fight coronavirus. I welcome Jeffrey Tucker to Savage Minds. These are very trying times, and it is refreshing to find other people in this another world of atomized existence where we have no longer the rights in many countries to speak with people in real life. I came across your person and your words early on when the virus had become a problem for the U.S. and the entire planet. I'm in Italy, just to give you an idea of what I've been through. I don't even think I need to say very much after that. I should probably get a purple heart. But what I noted early on, and we went through lockdown from 23 February last year, was this political orchestration around the first lockdown and then the run up to the second wave. We're seeing this now with the way that Omicron, as if a Star Trek figure, has been rolled out. And You named the political reaction to the virus that has been traveling around the world for months already last year, as politicians were allegedly listening to the experts. We heard a lot of that, and they were equally eager to take over. And you called this the 21st century central planning, which really struck a chord in me because I didn't have the words to say that. I was thinking something was wrong and this rang a bell for me. Can you discuss how you came to understand what was happening early on? Sure, well, I had been thinking about the topic of state interventions in the social order under the guise of virus control since about 2006, because that that was the first time to my knowledge in the U.S. political uh, setting, that there had been any talk at all about reviving, you know, such things as quarantines, much less shutdowns of travel, of businesses, of schools, of uh, locking people in their homes and that sort of thing. Um, That was first floated in uh, 2006 under the administration of George Bush. Uh, They were preparing for what they called back then the avian uh, swine flu. (laughs) But uh, that that particular bug never left um, uh, the the birds and never even infected humans, so they weren't able to deploy their little scheme. But it was very clear all the way back then that that's what they had in mind. And I kind of at the time wrote that this was a sort of new raison d'être of the of the state of the ruling class. Uh, they had sort of run out of anything else uh, to do their excuses for sort of social and economic hegemony had 
started to get thin. You know, they really, uh, especially at the end of the cold, you know, after the end of the Cold War, there wasn't much reason anymore for the national security state and welfare states around the world had failed to live up to their promise. So this is the going to be the new thing. Um, and so I knew that I knew that the powers were there, and I knew that they kind of imagined that they might do this, but it's something different to know that something was possible than to actually see it implemented in real time. Um, so, so I was as shocked as anybody on March 12th. Of course, we had, we had seen the lockdowns in China, then we'd seen them in Italy, and that was pretty scary. But, you know, Americans, we imagine ourselves to be, um, to have, you know, a constitution and a bill of rights, and we think that our laws protect our liberties. Uh, we also think that for some reason that the American people would never stand for tyranny, never put up with it. And uh, that turns out not to be true. <laughs> um, but it all, it all just kind of fell apart really quickly. And I think in a, in a funny way, it had to be Trump because I think if it had been a Democratic president, they, that they, the uh, re Republicans would never have uh, stood it, never tolerated it. I think Trump was the one who made it possible because obviously he had a lot of fans in the country. Um, uh, his supporters just wanted to defend him no matter what. And so even when he was violating the constitution and, and doing this crazy virus control stuff, um, his, uh, he, didn't, he didn't come under any kind of criticism uh, from the left or the right. And it made him really popular uh, among the left. And um, it, it was probably, and I was one of the few voices speaking out of against this thing, you know, back in January, 2020. And then again, in, in March, when all the lockdowns started happening, um, I just been, began to write ferociously about it. Now, of course, it's very different. You have many people all over the world that are against these lockdowns and protests taking place all over the place. It's a little, little, uh, too little, too late, as far as I'm concerned. And this has been going on nearly two years. And major media is not covering these protests at all. You won't turn on your TV and Radue Uno here and see the protests in Italy. I've been interviewing many people showing up at the protests here, and it's the only way to get the information as to what's happening. So clearly, not everyone's going to be able to roll up and call protesters on their phone. They've got full-time jobs elsewhere. But it's rather shocking, the collaboration between state powers and major media. They have been so on board with this the whole time to include the way that they have portrayed Fauci and then the Chris Cuomo show. And it's ironic that CNN's very silent now that he's gone because that was a mediated orchestra of one lie after another is I've got chills. He looked fine all the time, but I had chills last night. And I found this really troubling the way that we were sold in the same way that the war in Iraq came to us through embedded reporters. We were given embedded journalists to sell us lockdown. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was very similar to the war in Iraq. Yeah, you're right about that. Yeah. And another thing that struck me, and this struck me recently when I was interviewing someone the other day, because I'm, I'm so upset about what's happened here. We had a very ferocious lockdown. You know, in what world are we living where people say, hmm, 
let's do what China's doing. They've got a great human rights record. <laughs> Anyways, I'm sorry. I, I just get really angry because it's had a huge destructive force on my life. And one thing you will never hear politicians talk about is the kind of economic devastation this will have on everyone over the age of 35, because they're going to be up shit's creek to get a job when things pan out, if and ever they pan out. This is going to be really hard on people. You know, it's not just the, why do you have a two-year gap in your CV, sir? This is that plus ageism. Plus, I'm sure you've read a lot of what people are calling conspiracy theory, but we must be careful to call anything conspiracy theory at this point, because there is so much craziness about what has actually been allowed to happen from the loss of liberty and freedoms, the way that laws like not just in the US, in Italy, EU, human rights law, the Geneva Convention, what has gone on that we have been allowed to experience what if this were a prisoner in a US prison waiting at capital punishment, there would be the ACLU writing letters about the treatment of this person. How did it happen that it has been allowed for all of us to be put into a prison? Hence, lockdown was a very unsurprising name for what we're going through, because that term comes from prison. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's right. Get back into your cell. Uh, get back into your isolation. Uh, don't complain about it. We'll slip you food under the door. <laughs> That's yeah. exactly what's been going on. If here. only, if only yeah. we had food slipped under the door. Well, we almost had that in this country because... Uh, you know, we had we had lockdowns for the for the for the ruling classes, for the for the people who uh, uh, the, for the professional workers, you know, they could mm -hmm. just do their work from their computers. And then the working classes, you know, had to work the hospitals and get the food to the grocery stores and, and do all the deliveries. So people got used to it. They just got their food, all their food delivered to the door. And since the uh, media was telling everybody that uh, you had to stay away from people because everybody's got this terrible disease from which you're going to die um you know people were scared so they would you know set the set the food outside the door ring the doorbell and walk off and then you'd open the door and so it sh shattered you know businesses and communities and schools and churches and the churches were shut in this country for the better part of a year and even now i mean i was just I was just just got back from Washington, D.C. It's really sad, you know, to sit in the airport. Airports used to be fun, bustling commercial hubs in the U.S. And it was rushing from place to place. People had places to go, things to, things to see, stuff to do. And then it just all changed. Now, you know, you just look out over the, the crowds at the airport and everybody's just masked up and nobody's talking to anybody. Everybody's just staring at their phones. Uh, people sort of shuffling from place to place. It's 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 really shattered the whole sense that, of uh, love of life that people had, and and now we have a gigantic worker shortage in this country. And it's not just purely for economic reasons. It's because so many people have lost the sort of ambition for life. You know that sense of progress and hope has just been taken away from them. I have pitched to editors since last spring stories about depression and mental health issues during lockdown, every single one told me, no, we can't run this. It will look as mm. if we're against lockdown. And I wrote mm. them back invariably. And I said, I don't know why you would even say that because the number one critical factor after economics and suicides is this. And 
we can quantify suicides. We cannot actually quantify mental health because you're going to have a lot of underreporting. You're going to have people that don't know what they're going through. I've, I've been there. It is a huge struggle some days for me. And I'm a, I'm a cup half full kind of person. I lost my first child. I got through that. I thought I was strong as anything. This has tested my soul, you know, my will to live at, at days. It's been extremely hard because here, <laughs> this lovely country with no elected government has put restrictions on people without actually buttressing what they are demanding. So what I feel is this, why should we pay taxes in Italy? This is one of the questions I'm raising to myself these weeks. If I can't take a train, now I can't take a train unless I get this super green pass. I can't go anywhere without the super green pass right now. And they've restricted it overall during the next five weeks. Many people here saying, get everyone to get a bank account and become computerized so that the government can control illegal operations for making money under the table. That may or may not be true, but there's good reason to believe this as a theory. And essentially, I feel like I've been asked to give up my life, my social life, my mental health, my economic stability, my future earnings for the I don't even know what to call it. I guess the pretext of elderly people dying. And when I saw, and I saw this earlier this year, at the beginning of the year, that the average age from deaths in Italy due to this virus is allegedly 83, 84 years old. I was angry. I was extremely angry because I thought, wait a second, I shouldn't have to put myself on a cross for anyone else. And not the sense that this isn't the plague. Obviously, if this were something that was highly deadly and dangerous to everyone, then we can discuss the strategies at that time. This is not the plague. This is what we were sold in the early days from 23 February. But quickly, I saw the data. Quickly, it was evident that it was a certain kind of risk factor group, diabetes, being overweight, cardiovascular issues, aside from being elderly. In what world then are we living where now you're going to have generations of people because I'm in my 50s. You're, this is affecting everyone now, but basically mm -hmm. everyone's been asked to trash their savings. People have cycled through their savings. They don't know where they're going to eat for Christmas or if they can eat for Christmas. And we have been asked to trade this in on the lie. I call it the human shield of Grammy Grandpa. Mm -hmm. And that was a lie because even in this country where people, oh, I love my mother. And you'll hear that a lot when you go to the markets in the early days of this, where no one's arguing that you don't love your parents. I think the question is to ask is where was a social triage made where in a hospital you have triage. It's very clear that you take the person who has a gunshot wound over the person with a broken thumb. Where was the triage made to decide that I and my family might have to live on the streets instead of someone's 90 year old grandfather passing a month or two years early. I know that sounds heartless to some people, but I think this was a question that was never asked. Well, um, there was almost no talk about the demographics of risk, even from the very beginning, you know, there, there was no, you said you, you had to look it up. Exactly. I mean, this should have been, the number one headline, and we knew the demographics of risk from February 2020, all the way from uh, the earliest uh, discovery of the of the of the virus. We knew that it was uh, 
almost harmless to young people. There's a thousand fold difference in the risk for young and old of this virus. And so it doesn't, no, it doesn't make any sense, but that would have changed. So it's one of the things they couldn't uh, talk about the demographics of the risk here because they had a social wide, they had a society wide solution. Everybody had to be locked up. Everybody had to be um, controlled. So they had to, you know, give the impression that it was equally a risk for everybody, which is just simply not true. And, um, and you know, the thing is that the, that the lockdowns didn't control the virus anyway. I mean, we st- you know, this, and I had these arguments very early on with people because uh, I had, you know, some very prominent people from the Gates Foundation and, and uh, the CDC and everything calling me up, trying to get me to shut up about this topic. And I kept asking the same question, you know, what what happens to the virus? What are you going to do about the virus? Where is that thing going to go once you've locked us all down and kept us all separated and closed the schools and closed the churches and and everything? What where is the virus going to go? And they never nobody ever had a good answer for me, you know, because that that's the problem. I and mean, we can't get rid of these pathogens. We we live amongst them. We always do. That's always going to be true. It's always been true, and it'll always be true. This, this coronavirus is going to continue to mutate and mutate and mutate, and it's going to be around for another billion years. That's just the way uh, viruses are, and we know that already. So there's nothing that you gain from locking people down. All you do is prolong the pain at best, but you're not going to make it go away. Now, back in those days, uh, they were saying to me that, well, we have to wait for a vaccine. Well, the problem with that is um, you already had this accumulation of, of natural immunities that were taking place anyway. And we still don't have good estimates on how many people have obtained natural immunity in this country. We know it's, you know, probably close to 150 million people in the U.S. I don't know about Italy, but, and we also know, and we knew this long before there was a vaccine, natural immunity is much safer, more effective, broader um, than any vaccine. So if there's something that's non-lethal, you're way better off just, you know, risking the exposure, developing herd immunity, and then uh, having the thing become endemic. That's just the obvious answer. That's what we've always done in the past. I mean, that's how societies dealt with viruses for thousands of years. And so this, this experiment that they conducted on us, not only... It never made sense, even from the very beginning. It never really made any sense. And then, they, you know, they, they were saying back in those days, this is something, something like, let's say, April and May 2020, um, I was having people tell me, oh, we're going to stay locked down until we get a vaccine. Well, safe vaccines that we've used in the past uh, can take years to develop and test. And they shoved this thing out under the false promise that it was 94% effective or whatever. And I knew from the very beginning those studies were suspect because I knew people who had signed up to test the vaccine. Well, they were mostly young people. They weren't, te- they weren't really testing the, the vaccine on people who probably needed it the most, which is the elderly. So the, because they wanted to get the emergency use authorization uh, done, uh, but then it turns out that we, I guess there was an advertisement, you know, early on that this is going to somehow um, control the spread or stop infection, which we know now 
Uh, it does not. Uh, the Brownstone Institute, we have 33 studies listing uh, that, you know, that proving that this is a non-sterilizing um, therapeutic, that it can minimize symptoms for a few months. Um, and then you have to have a booster. And it's not, it doesn't stop infection. It doesn't stop the spread. Uh, the most it can do is prolong. Uh, it can delay the point of death for people who might otherwise have experienced death. I think we know that. I'm not sure that we know that. But that seems to be the best that you can say about this vaccine. So none of these passports and segregations and all these brutal treatment of people makes any sense. It doesn't make any sense scientifically. And it certainly doesn't make any sense in, uh, from a humane <clears throat> social and economic point of view. Well, certainly people are on Twitter declaring if one more person makes a comparison to Nazism with these green passes, I'm going to block you. And I can understand disliking comparisons, but comparisons exist because that's all people have in lieu of a, a meme with a mm. fluffy cat on it. People are exhausted. And I see the spirit of the comparison. Let's put it that way. I think when we start to control populations based on a lie, give you an example. Oh, it's going to be hard not to laugh on this. My two children go to the same school. They are in two different years because they're not twins. And I have to stand in a queue and each one goes in at a different time. This is the biggest hokum I've seen in my lifetime because it's been allowed to perpetuate since they started school in September of 2020. This is unscientific, obviously, because not just myself, but there are many families out there with several children in different years. So I'm sending, let's just say, my two contaminated children into years one and three, another one into years four and three, and you know, and so forth and so on. There's zero science to the staggered entry and exit times. They have been able to convince people that this is a necessity. And tomorrow I'm going to crash a meeting with this province's health minister because they are now having families. This is such a joke. I'm sorry, it really gets under my skin. They are having families who have refused to sign, which is called a pact of co-responsibility for education. They are elbowing us to sign it by having an online webinar, <laughs> webinar to participate. And so I look at it and basically, it's lasting two hours, but it's them, what I suspect, going to give us a lot of fake information as to why we should sign it. And I'm going to go there, both as a parent and a member of the press, and ask questions. Because many parents here have not signed this pact for many reasons, one being it's a unidirectional pact. It's illegal. We are, we are not punished, and they cannot punish us if we do not sign it. But one must wonder why this is being rolled out. One illegal document after another, lies being told by politicians, illegal lockdowns. And now in Italy, if you want to protest this, the, the price of eggs, you're welcome to protest the price of eggs. But if you want to protest anything related to COVID measures, mm. you cannot do it in the center of towns. Mm. This is really shocking mm. to me. Like, what world are we living in? I have to keep asking myself this because we've been tortured. What we have been put through here, I really feel that the 
parliamentarians in this government, the current and past president, should be put on trial. I believe this for all the leaders who have voted for this nonsense, because we've been put into a kind of torture. It is not solitary confinement for those of us with children, but for single people, yes, they've had their very different mental health issues. For those of us with children, we've been told to, as you mentioned earlier, work from home because you can, educate your kids. And when you have a child who is not in school, such as my son last year, and then my daughter who was in school, how are you supposed to homeschool two kids while working full time? Like no one thought this through or they just thought we'd go along out of fear and say nothing. And this has been allowed to go unquestioned. So Italy, among many other EU countries, have broken many human rights laws. And where is the EU in all this absent? And so when I found your institute, and I found your institute also because I've interviewed two of the Barrington declarants, uh, Martin and Jay, and I was very impressed by what that declaration offered. And the Brownstone Institute was formed earlier this year. You've published many articles opposing various measures against coronavirus. And on your website, what really impressed me was this, and I'm just going to read this out because I think this is a, an important note to what's going on today and the attempts to discredit both the Great Barrington Declaration, this institute and anyone like myself who speaks out and is from the left, I'll be slurred as from the right or whatever. It says this, uh, the Brownstone Institute is not about partisan attachments or exclusionary ideological labels. Our content is neither left nor right, though our contributors have their own views. As an institution, Brownstone celebrates democratic institutions, freedom as the path to scientific progress, a trustworthy system of public health, a vibrant culture and economic prosperity. We also share a concern for all members of society, including the poor and the working class. In accordance with these ideals, we publish a wide variety of perspectives and viewpoints, including contradictory views by different authors. And I was like, yes, <laughs> this is what media should be doing. And as an institute, you're doing what CNN and Fox and all the rest should have been doing. Well, to be fair, Fox has been more even keeled on this subject and many others. So when you mentioned how this came in to process through Trump, I was thinking while you said that about how the left-wing media at the time was still banging on about Russiagate. <laughs> they couldn't criticize Trump about this because they were going to be the next torchbearers for this, right? As we're seeing now. And what I notice is that the criticism of the Great Barrington Declaration and the Brownstone Institute is invariably this. These people are affiliated with the American Institute for Economic Research, a right-wing organization, blah, blah, blah. I'm sure you've seen this. I find these kinds of criticisms throwaways because what lockdown, and even before this, I'd even say the gender identity debates, because I started to see this with the gender identity wars in the UK, that left and right as a dichotomy is pretty much gone. We can no longer say that the left has the interests of the working class. I'm seeing more concern during COVID especially, but I'm seeing more concern for the working class out of all the major media 
Fox News covers the working class the most. Mm -hmm. This is shocking to me, but it's true. Yeah. Um, I am not seeing the left acting very leftly. Right. That said, I might say that the traditional right, maybe as it was caricatured by the left, Bible something, gun toting, narrow minded racist, well, that caricature has likewise been exploded by BLM. COVID, even the recent sentence last week of that actor, Jesse Smollett, uh, we're seeing that racism and all these other isms are two-way streets, that one can be on the left and be a perfect racist because making everything into race becomes its own form of racism. Similarly, asking why lockdown measures are happening in this way does not mean that you think the virus was invented and that there's microchips being implanted in your head. It means that you're asking just that question. And there seems to be a ready-made apparatus by mainstream media like CNN and MSNBC to shut down all discussion such that we were given the Dr. Fauci show. And this to me is frightening. And it's still going on. I mean, he's still probably, this was Sunday in the US and uh... Uh, he's probably on TV right now going on about Omicron and how we have to be careful and lock down and mask up and get vaccinated and get boosted third, fourth, fifth times and so on. Yeah, it's just been an amazing thing um, on this left right issue. Uh, you know, it hasn't mattered uh, to me at all. By the way, I wrote an entire book, you know, at the start of the Trump era called uh, Right Wing Collectivism. And it was what I attempted to do was sort of trace uh, or in the Portuguese title is Collectivism of the Right, uh, to trace another form of this sort of authoritarian thinking that's not just from the left, it's not just, you know, Marx, but it, but there's a, a right-wing version too. And I that's the whole purpose of the book was just to kind of trace that out and explain that to people that you can get despotism under the left or the right, it doesn't really matter. Um, so, you know, I had real credentials in this area. Um, and I was warning about Trump that I thought that he could, that he, he didn't think about freedom the proper way, basically. And, and I was right about that. Um, but, you know, the idea that, that Brownstone would be criticized as right wing, it's, it's so ridiculous at this point. Um, I don't, you know, I, th I was thinking about, you know, held a, held a big party Brownstone event last night. And I think most of the guests, uh, two years ago would have thought of themselves as being from the left, you know? Um, but I'm not sure they think about themselves that way anymore. Um, other people might have thought of themselves as being on the right, but I'm not sure they think about themselves that way anymore. The lockdowns and the mandates, have, as you said, have shattered these old categories um, and, and really raised fundamental questions about what kind of society you want to live in. And I don't care if you're left or right or complete non-political at all. You want a society that functions, you want markets that function, and you want human rights, and for people to be treated with dignity and respect for their human person by virtue of their humanity, and not to be part of somebody else's mad science experiment, which is what all this was about. And that is more urgent, I would say, than any of the particulars concerning the things that have traditionally divided left and right. 
We have to have a consensus. We have to renew a consensus in favor of you know the basic enlightenment values before we can even start talking about all these other particulars and things that used to uh, divide us. And so that's why I started Brownstone was just just to get the topic back on question. You know, what is civilization? Uh, what kind of society do we want to live in? Uh, how do we want to regard the human person? Uh, we have to ask these questions because, because what they attempted to do to us starting in, uh, in, uh, in spring of 2020 was take away our humanity. We have to get it back somehow. Um, I think it is gra- gradually coming back. I noticed um, the New York Times this morning is, has a very interesting editorial that doesn't say, doesn't come around completely to the Great Barrington Declaration, but they do admit, I'll just read you one sentence. It says, too many Americans are still paralyzed with doubt and fear over each new uncertainty. They're speaking about you know, the, the virus. As trust in government and other institutions to manage the virus ranges from shaky to non-existent. <laughs> so that's the New York Times this morning admitting the editorial page, admitting that that the lockdowns and the mandates have has shattered people's trust in government and and the media and public health generally. I mean, we've just it's it's gone. They say non-existent. I wouldn't even go that far, but they're they're saying it's shaky to non-existent. That's how bad it is. And we don't know what that means. I mean, what our future looks like in a world in which which nobody believes anything, you know, coming from any government official or media or public health or science, you know, that's 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 not a that's not a world I want to live in, but that's the world they created by their by their grotesque experiments on the human population that began almost two years ago and are continuing on under new guises. You know, this new segregationism is an incredible thing. I mean, just you know, separate the clean and the unclean in a democratic society is disgusting, but that's what they're doing. You're listening to Savage Minds, and we hope you're enjoying the show. Please consider subscribing. We don't accept any money from corporate or commercial sponsors, and we depend upon listeners and readers just like you. Now, back to our show. We recognized this during the height of the AIDS crisis, and somehow that lesson went away. And I'll tell you something. These vaccines, we have to put the word in quotes. I've never seen a vaccine where you carry the virus all the same. In fact, they're calling those of us who haven't been vaccinated selfish. I would argue if you get a vaccine that only serves you, because that's what these vaccines do, they don't actually lower the transmission rate for those individuals, then that's selfish and that's fine. That's fine, take it. I'm not judgmental about people who take it, but I find the rhetoric completely opposite day around this. On top of this, As I mentioned, the average age of death here is 83, 84, depending on what statistics you read. Now, the vaccine has been oversold as safe. We have now the new Pfizer release documents 10 days ago. I'm reading through them now that 
we know that the myocarditis was underreported. We know that those who will get myocarditis are not 84, but much younger, mostly men, young men. So we're being told to sacrifice now this demographic of late teens, early 20s, men and women, for the morbidly obese, those with diabetes, those with heart conditions, those who are elderly. This seems to me to be a perversity of science or of reporting science, let's say, because we are not given the numbers. If we know that the vaccine is harming younger people, and yet those same people, should they get the virus, will likely not die of it. In fact, many, most will not even show symptoms. Why is this not the center of discussion on the Rachel Maddow show every night instead of Trump derangement yeah. syndrome all over? Well, and, and I keep asking myself this question. Why is it that they think that they can continue to suppress the truth on this stuff? You know, I mean, do, do they just think that the human population is just dumb as rocks? Yeah. You know, that we can't find out this information, that we can't read the science ourselves. It's all available, mm -hmm. you know. Um, it's all out there. And, you know, you have to, if you're going to believe all the nonsense that they're, they're spewing, you have to be uh, completely robotically uncritical. You can't, you can, you know, the, they're depending on the idea that the human population is completely compliant and non-thinking, which is just not true. I mean, that's not, that's not the way human beings are. We we tend to be very thoughtful and we can read. Yeah. And uh, uh, I don't see how they they think they can get away with this. I, I really don't get it. Um, I'm not sure what it's like in Italy. In this country, we're I never imagined we would have vaccine mandates, much less segregation, but it's happening. Um they're all being shot down by the courts right now. The courts are all saying that these these rules are terrible and uh, and the Biden administration's uh, mandates are not constitutional. But they're going ahead anyway, and it's become, you know, just a matter of of habit or fashion or something to restrict your parties, your venues, your stores, your companies to the vaccinated only, uh, uh, without a slightest understanding of the implications of this, um, or, or for, for that matter, I mean, Omicron has, that the, the, the variant has picked up mostly among the vaccinated population, mostly. And presumably those people are people without natural immunities, but with vaccines where they're all getting sick. You know, we can read this data. We know this is true. What do they think they're doing? Why do they think they can continue to lie to everybody? It's so preposterous. And we've, it's been two years of lies. I mean, even now in the US, it's probably true in Italy too. There's plexiglass all over our commercial marketplaces, you know, as if that's gonna stop the virus. <laughs> <laughs> it's just laughable. And it does, it, does, it does the opposite, right? So what the plexiglass does is it traps the airflow, stops the air from flowing. And therefore, you know, uh, um, actually makes the likelihood of pass passing on pathogens more um, uh, intensified because, because uh, you're stopping the flow of air in the room with these plexiglass things. And yet we've had these in place for two years and say nothing to the masks, which there's not a shred of evidence that the masks have controlled a, a virus, the virus anywhere in the world. And yet everybody keeps, you know, they're still, I don't know. It's, it's like they concocted these, 
this liturgy for us, this ritual, and they just expect everybody to comply with it, even though it doesn't make any sense. And it's just, it's like an obedience test. Uh, you know, do you love the state? Are you willing to be a subject or not? I've been working on the issue of the gender wars for about nine years now. And mm -hmm. when you cannot say on Twitter that men are not women and you get banned, and this has happened to so many women, now more and more men, this is a hallmark moment of seeing that we are in a new era of newspeak. And some feminists have said to me, I wonder if that wasn't training for what we're experiencing in lockdown, because if you can convince people that men can change sex and women can change sex, then that itself is anti-science. Mm -hmm. And now skip to the fact that we have statistics in many countries to include this one, where they're not even sussing out who's died over these past 21 months from COVID or flu. Mm -hmm. The data's messy. In some cases, there's no flu deaths, right? And so you've got the conflation of statistics. Then we've got the more troubling problem that we are beholden to private companies, pharmaceutical companies for our freedoms, which I don't, I'm not one of those people who thinks that this was all concocted by Big Pharma, but it is troubling that Big Pharma now has a stakehold in our freedom. And they're making a lot of money from it. Um, <laughs> and yeah, from the very outset, well, let me just say, I, I always had doubts about this vaccine, mainly because the coronavirus mutates really quickly and vaccines are really, can only be made sterilizing if, if the virus is very stable, you know, like a polio or <clears throat> smallpox or something like that. But, um, if it's mutated all the time, you, you're not going to be able to vaccinate it against it. And they've never had a successful vaccine against the coronavirus. So I, I was suspicious of this thing from the very outset. But if you're going to come up with it and call it a vaccine and say, oh, here's the thing, you should be at least, um, they, they should have opened up their intellectual property of, to, to allow widespread manufacture of it, not monopolize it among uh, two or three companies in the world, you know, that have now, now gotten enormously rich by getting governments to force their product on people. I mean, it's just, a, it's just an, an amazing scandal. As you say, where's the left, you know, on all this? Stuff? It's exactly. just, uh, it's, it's beyond anything I could have ever imagined would happen in my lifetime. I just, I just don't understand that. You say you don't really accept the uh, idea that it's all plot by big pharma. You know, I think, I think you're right about that. But, you know, with, with these extreme policies, what it did was it just kind of unearthed all sorts of um, interest groups all over the world. And everybody wants a piece of it now, you know, and uh, from the testing companies to the mask manufacturers to now the hospitals, you know, everybody's got their hand in the cookie jar. And one of those things is big pharma and they're getting rich at our expense. That's not the way markets are supposed to work. Well, it also serves that the public would then not trust media or government. If you really believe that these vaccines, quote unquote vaccines function, and you really want to help rid the world of this, the first thing you would do is remove the patent and allow this to be produced for much cheaper rates. And so forth. just that. like what happens with Brazil during the AIDS crisis, they did that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And 
Yeah, and they also have liability, and the companies that manufacture it have to bear liability uh, for for the results, right? So yeah, you open up the IP, and then you allow anybody to manufacture it, but then uh, they have to, like a regular company, if, this, if their product doesn't work or it harms you, they should they should bear liability for that. That would have fixed everything. Open up the IP and and assign liability correctly, like we always have traditionally done, and it would have fixed everything. But nope, lock down the IP and then exempt. Uh, these companies, uh, they're all indemnified against any damages or death from their product. Unbelievable. In Italy, you have to sign a form to not hold the government responsible. So on the one hand, you can't take a train unless you get the vaccine. But if you do take the vaccine, you have no legal rights. You must rescind your legal rights. This is concerning to me. And it's got to be, uh, it's got to go away. And I think it can go away. I, you know, the big problem I think we're faced with right now is that this is true for almost every government in the world without, with the exception of maybe two or three. They all pursued these policies that have not controlled the virus, but they've ruined and demoralized the population and wrecked businesses and wrecked lives all over the world. And now they've got a problem because they were completely wrong and I think more and more people know that they're wrong. Um, now they're in a position they have to either admit it uh, and apologize and face justice or continue to distract people with preposterous policies like this, you know, vaccine mandates and segregation and that sort of thing. I think that's really what's going on here is you have um, just governments around the world realizing in a sort of mortified way what, what's, you know, that, that they, engaged in a t- terrible set of disastrous policies that wreck public health. And they're trying to delay the day at which they're held accountable for what they've done. And they're continuing to do that by creating more and more of this, uh, uh, these mandates and policies as, as smoke screens for their, own, for their own failure. But it's not going to work. And we do live in an age of information. You can get the information that's out there. Until they shut us down, but they can't shut us down. They're not going to shut us down. There's no way they can shut us down. YouTube has now got new terms of service uh, going in, in place in January that supposedly, I mean, the list of things that they, they've banned from being talked about on their platform is so long that they would have to delete tens of millions of videos uh, to comply with it. I just don't believe they can do that. I think, I think there's no chance that they'll be able to do that. And what's happening as well is people are abandoning YouTube, just mm-hmm. like Brett Weinstein and Heather Haying have gone over to Odyssey. More and more people are going to competitors of YouTube because yeah. they can't be arsed to move home, basically. That's a lot of work as well for the user. And they don't want to throw their trust to a corporation that doesn't have free speech at heart. Yeah, that's right. Now, YouTube is probably the first or second uh, largest, most traffic site in the world. And these competitors, uh, Rumble and uh, Odyssey and BitChute and these other companies, I think combined don't uh, uh, equal YouTube's traffic. Uh, But that's starting to change and it can change more. And uh, we're seeing a lot of companies that are going to be rising up to challenge these tech monopolies. The, more, the tighter they get, uh, the more they incentivize the competition to come along. So, yeah, we're living in 
dramatic times of, of, of change. We're seeing changes in technology, the platforms we use, people don't trust Google anymore. I see more and more people uh, leaving uh, Google services for email clients like Proton Mail, you know, out of Switzerland and so on. So we're seeing, you know, dramatic technological industrial upheaval. And what we haven't yet seen, but which is surely coming is, is huge political change, you know? So you had this kind of, this mayor of Milan, you know, this, this upset uh, where I guess her whole platform is, you know, for freedom. And I guess she's really resisted a lot of the mandates and that's great. Um, But in this country, I have, I've never seen so many regular people suddenly decide to run for office. (laughs) Every day I get another note from a friend of mine. Well, I'm going to run for U S Senate, you know, (laughs) Um, within one year, we're probably going to see most of the Democrats kicked out of most offices all over the country. It's going to be a huge upheaval and I don't know what it looks like, but there, there's going to be a price to be paid for this. We will not live this way. Um, it, Italians won't live this way. Russians won't live this way. And there's nobody in the world. I mean, human beings are not good at living in cages, you know? Even from where I live, I see this opulent estate. And all throughout lockdown, I saw extremely affluent people with acres of land, behind my tiny flat we had just moved here and we took a tiny flat thinking we'll find a house in three months little did we know there was a lockdown about to happen Mm. and watching this family outside my house there were moments when I just thought I would go insane because the haves and have-nots that's what's deciding this lockdown and who's in agreement and who isn't it's not always the case but it's generally the case (laughs) It is. And uh, the whole pandemic response just completely, you know, blew off and threw under the bus the uh, working classes and the poor just didn't care. And I get really upset about it uh, myself because, um, you know, I suppose that the marginalized and vulnerable members of society always have a a tough time of it anyway. Um, But but under the the lockdowns and mandates, it's just been it's been brutal. I ran an article, I guess the day before yesterday, um, by a student in Canada who's blind. Uh, so she, she can't see. She has a little bit of light in, that she can uh, detect in one eye, but she also has cerebral palsy. So, so half of her body is sort of paralyzed. Well, um, with a mask on, she said she feels like a monster. Like she, nobody wants to come near her because she, they can see her eyes are kind of something's wrong with her eyes and her body's all messed up in the old days. She could smile at people, make people feel not threatened by her, but covering up her face, suddenly she was just, nobody wanted to be around her. Then they had these rules. You weren't supposed to touch anybody or touch anything because that's supposedly going to pass on the virus. So this is, this is the way she navigates her way through the world is by touching things and people touches them as a major way uh, that feeds her whole sort of perceptions of the world around her. And now she's been told she can't touch anybody. So, you know, she went through two really hard years and then, um, but they had online classes. So she was able to attend them and get her work done. But now they're in person classes only for the vaccinated. Well, she can't get the vaccine because it's a real health risk for her. And now they've abolished online classes. So she's just been completely excluded from all of society and deeply depressed. 
And this is, you know, she's a good soul who was trying to do the right thing. And now her life is ruined. So I ran this article and I really expected it to get a lot more attention than it did. Uh, unfortunately, um, I think we've just become more callous these days. Um, we don't have time anymore for compassion for, for people because we're all just trying to survive. It's become a savage and brutal and nihilistic world of lack of concern of others and just selfish concern for oneself and survival. And it's incredible that we could have been reduced to such a primitive state of brutalism in a mere two years by governments all over the world. Astonishing. And isn't it astonishing that it's the left that's been pushing this? The, yeah. the compassionate material reality left? Mm -hmm. It's insane. I'll never forget the Pelosi video last year. I understand why people hate her now because she was in front of one of her many $20,000 refrigerators where she's taking out of the freezer this very posh ice cream and eating it and talking about lockdown hardship. <laughs> and that just, I wanted to jump across the screen and, you know, I mean, I could even laugh at Arnold Schwarzenegger's goat videos more so. This is a politician who's living in a house with a kitchen that's larger than most of the flats in New York City. And how on earth do we have someone? And, you know, I follow the news as well. I, I see other journalists, podcasters, et cetera, see what they're doing. And Jimmy Dore exposed a lot of her lies on his show because the, the big lie out there is that Trump didn't want people to get checks. And she did when, in fact, she tried to lower the price that he wanted to pay Americans. And all this absolute madness that Democrat voters are not willing to accept because it's reality. The fact that the poor matter seems to be an oversight for these folks. And they're not very leftist at all when you start to analyze what they propose and what they support. Yeah. Uh, the, yeah. The Democrats have been absolutely suicidal throughout this whole thing. You know, they had a real chance after Trump left office. They could have, and I thought they would. I thought they would see every reason to loosen up and liberalize and emancipate people and see the economy come back to use real science, you know, instead of lockdowns and mandates. And brought normalcy. They could be, you know, fantastically successful today. They didn't. They went exactly the opposite direction. More mandates, more masks, more nonsense. And now they're all going to be thrown out of office. I mean, it is a, it's a, a disaster. I mean, Biden is so unpopular right now. He's, he's only got the confidence of about a third of the American public. And I can tell you, in America, you can find a third of the American public willing to believe anything. And that, that is such a low amount of confidence. And he's dra dragging down the whole party. Uh, yeah, it's going to be a, a disaster. I'm, I'm sure, by the way, the, re the Republicans that are going to sweep into office are going to screw it up just like um, they always have in the past. But nonetheless, I don't know. I mean, maybe we'll get a whole new crop of politicians coming in. I think it's probably true all over the world, actually. It's going to be, it's, it's going to be revolutionary times. I mean, I really do feel it. Um, and, oh, another thing, you know, you talked about the media earlier. Um, you know, CNN is losing uh, viewers uh, dramatically. And uh, people are bailing out of all the mainstream uh, news to find alternatives. 
uh, you talked about conspiracy theories. I mean, how could you not be a conspiracy theorist these days? I mean, nobody understands why this happened. Why did it have to happen? None of the, everything they say is a lie. You know, this has been going on for two years. Of course, there's conspiracy theories out there. I mean, <laughs> you'd have to be asleep not to believe at least some part of some of them, you know? Right. And plus, you have the reporting of certain types of papers, certain types of peer reviewed papers, the ones that say what they want to be said. And the cherry picking of science has to end. I'm not a big fan of regulating media, but there needs to be something done because if all we have is Snopes, then we're in trouble. Oh gosh. There is no way for most people who are working or now being semi-locked down, locked down, or they've lost their jobs and are now searching for a job, which is actively more time than working. So you've got loads of people who are overwhelmed and don't have the time to read all these science papers. When I went to the Brownstone Institute, I was very impressed to see the kinds of studies that you have mm -hmm. that have shown the 120 studies on natural immunity, for instance. Uh -huh. Right. Why is this not being covered by mainstream media? Because as you said, it's good. The truth is going to come out yeah. and these media outlets will have to address their dishonesty. No, or maybe never. I think they, they will have to address it. And uh, we're starting to see the first signs of that. I read that line from the New York Times this morning. I mean, even the New York Times this morning was saying, let's get rid of the plexiglass. This is dumb. Well, who did it? It was the CDC that did that. You can look it up. I mean, yes, yeah, plexiglass is just stupid, but the CDC recommended it. Mm -hmm. even mandated it for businesses all over the country. Where's some truth and honesty about, about, uh, about what's taking place. They cannot suppress the truth forever. It's just, it's just not going to work. And uh, it's going to be a generation or two or three before there's even going to be the beginning of restoration of some sort of trust in government and public health and media. Mm -hmm. There's just, it's just shattered for basically everybody alive. You know? <laughs> yeah. And now let's not even start to talk about the vaccines. Because one thing that frightens me about the vaccines is this, Jeffrey. How are they going to roll this back? How do you roll back the fact that you've given people a very leaky vaccine where now they're going to have to be getting injections every how many months? Three. What are you going to do when the science comes out to show that maybe or likely this was unnecessary and that maybe no vaccine was the better option? How do governments answer to that without there being a total revolution? See, my worry is that if the truth were to come out, the people would rightfully be literally in our country up in arms. And you're right. A vaccine is very personal. You know, uh, some medical guy shoves a needle in your arm and pumps a liquid in that you don't know anything about. And you're having to do it under duress. There hasn't been anybody who's gotten a vaccine probably in uh, a year. Well, let's see. Yeah. Well, I would say probably in about nine months who really wanted it. You know, if you wanted the vaccine, you could have gotten it, you know, um, in the spring. Uh, if you're getting vaccinated now, it's because you're being forced into it, pressured into it. And people resent that, you know, you shouldn't, shouldn't force people to take medicine they don't want. And yeah, instead of making people, you know, happy to be readmitted to society, I think what it does is the opposite. And, so many vaccinated people I know have said that they're just they're just mad about it. They feel like they're walking around with some unknown poison in their body and they, they don't like it, especially they were forced to get it. It's just wrong. 
So, yeah, especially if you have bad health effects from it, or you know somebody who, who suspects has had bad, bad uh, adverse uh, consequences uh, from the vaccines, and, and nobody's, you know, bears liability for it. It's infuriating. It's infuriating. By the way, the New York Times this morning, uh, despite the sort of pretty good, some aspects of that editorial were the most sensible thing they've said in two years, it ends by wanting, you know, more vaccine mandates, of course, you know? <laughs> so, which I guess is, I don't really, I don't really understand what's going on. Really, I wish I, I wish I did know. But, you know, was that the game from the very beginning? Was that the, the, the end goal, you know, to the green cord, as you, as you call it? Uh, we don't have that in this country yet. Um, but maybe it's it is just driving us toward this China-style social credit system where your the extent of your rights are are entirely dependent upon your opinions and and your uh, willingness to comply, and they they just destroy everybody else. That's you know it's it's funny. It's it's very much like the an ancient concept of what is liberty. You know, the only free citizens and even in the best of times in Rome were the ruling class. And everybody else was considered inferior, and uh, uh, you could exclude them, you know, the merchants and the slaves and everything else. And that seems to be where we're going, you know, just a restoration of this ancient idea of non-enlightenment idea of liberty. Uh, we never thought it could happen in our times. You mentioned something earlier about uh, the, the Nazis and how, you know, we're not supposed to ever make any comparisons, you know, to life under the Third Reich or something like that, as if that's just tacky or uncalled for or extreme. Well, you know, what is the purpose of studying history if not to learn lessons for your own time? Is the whole, you know, we've we've all studied the rise of the Nazis in Germany. We understand that the biomedical uh, fascistic state that they created and the exclusions and. Uh, uh, and the segregations that ended uh, basically in uh, mass murder, um, we know what happened. We've all been to the Holocaust museums. We, we see how it began, how it, how it was a gradual thing. We're supposed to learn some lesson from that beyond don't ever let a guy with a little mustache and a barking voice get in charge of you. I mean, that surely there's more you can learn from that experience than that, right? <laughs> so, uh, 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 there should not be some sort of ban of, of discussion of this because you know, there's certain features of that regime that ended in a very extreme way, but there's a there's a trajectory in politics that that is very similar, you know, to to regimes across the world, and we we have to learn these lessons so that we don't repeat them. Um, we don't just study history for its own sake. We study history so that we can, we can be alert uh, when we see things going wrong in our own times and so we can forestall a disaster down the road. And so we need to have discussions of this topic. There shouldn't be bans on learning from past totalitarian systems. We're all survivors. We're all survivors. We've been psychologically abused and we're different. All of us are different people now than we were two years ago. We've got to find a way to continue to, to survive and thrive and rebuild, uh, regain a sense of hope and help others too. Uh, 
to do the same. And and if we do this, each of us, uh, hopefully, we'll eventually rebuild the social order and the society and the countries and the life that we, that we had that we loved. We need that rebuilding exercise is going to take us the rest of our lives, I'm afraid. <laughs>